This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Furkan Gellin. He's from an organization called World Beyond War. Um, is it possible to have World Beyond War? I asked him how much of this bio I should uh, use to introduce him. And he says, no, 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 just introduce me. So please welcome Furkan Gellin to our meeting today. Furkan? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for coming out here today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Lynn, who actually introduced me to and gave me this opportunity. And I'm not sure who she talked to. Perhaps it was Theresa. Not sure. But somehow, Lynn, one of our new chapter members, connected me with Vancouver Peace Poppies event. And I got connected with this. And I had an opportunity to speak about World Beyond War. So I'm glad all that worked out. So as uh, Dan mentioned, my name is Furkan Galen, and I'll just give a little background on myself and how I fit in into the, the, the peace movement. Um, so basically, my, my parents are from Pakistan, but I was born in England, Newcastle, so I'm a Geordie. Um, I was four years old when we moved to Vancouver, and I've been here since. And uh, around grade 10 is probably when I started getting involved in anti-war peace, uh, social justice type of issues. And since then, I've remained involved. The one point I did kind of back off from it was around 2002, 2003, after the uh, demonstrations to stop the Iraq war did not work. I kind of got disappointed. But since then, I've, I've re-engaged and, uh, uh, initially with Canadian Peace Initiative and now with World Beyond War. So that, that's kind of a little bit of my personal background. So World Beyond War has uh, been around for about four years, and it's a grassroots organization with uh, chapters uh, all around the world, and, 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 it's, and it's growing. And the Vancouver chapter, I started this chapter about uh, spring of this year, so it's fairly new. And uh, uh, I'll give a little background on how I, how I got to this point a little bit later. So the mission of World Beyond War is to abolish war. Not this war or that war, but all wars. And not just the wars, but actually the very institution of war. And, you know, I know Remembrance Day is coming up, and a lot of people, it seems to become, seems to have become a militaristic or a supporting militarism type of event, unfortunately. And uh, I guess that's where the white poppies movement is, is trying to act as a counterbalance. And uh, so that's, that's the mission of World Beyond War. Get rid of wars, get rid of the institution, and, uh, and, and build a better world. So a centerpiece of, of, of doing this, of, of getting to this point, is dismantling the, the myths about war. Because that's what keeps this institution somehow in the minds of people, something that we still need, something that is still relevant, even though it really is not. It's a, it's a drain on resources. It's a drain on, on so many things. And I'm sure you all are quite aware of that. Okay. 
So myth number one. So I'm going to go through a few of the myths and give some counterbalance to, to them. Am I blocking? I just realized I'm blocking some views. So myth number one, war is inevitable. Uh, we, need, we need to believe that war is not inevitable. I don't, I don't believe that it's inevitable. If it was inevitable, the U.S. would not need a billion-dollar marketing division to market its wars. So clearly it's not inevitable. Uh, war is not in our genes. War is an invention of the last 5% of human existence. Archaeology finds little, little evidence of weapons or dominator societies before 4000 BC. War has been sporadic, and some societies have not known war, and some don't even have militaries. Uh, in the current uh, era, Costa Rica is one country. Since 53, it has not had a military. Some have known it and abandoned it. So war is a social, not a biological event. And war is not natural. Uh, a great deal of conditioning is needed to prepare most people to take part in war. And a great deal of mental suffering is common among those who take part. In contrast, not a single person is known to have suffered deep moral regret or post-traumatic stress disorder for more deprivation. The US military works with psychiatrists to develop methodologies to better prepare assassins to kill such as psychological techniques to present the enemy as less than human, mass killing is not part of nature. Quite the opposite is true. A 2015 study found that veterans commit suicide at a rate 50% higher than their civilian counterparts. And mass shootings, mass killings in the U.S. are disproportionately committed by veterans. So this speaks volumes of the damaging psychological impact of war. And war is not a permanent part of culture. Any aspect of society that necessitates war can be changed and is not in itself inevitable. So war is a social invention, a choice, not something imposed by a law of nature. So war is not created by crises beyond our control. Up to this point in history, war has not been correlated with population density or resource scarcity. Thus, the idea that climate change and resulting catastrophes will inevitably generate war is not based on fact. Ending war is possible. Human societies have been known to abolish institutions that were widely considered permanent. Slavery, the death penalty, human sacrifice, blood feuds, dueling, all these were considered a norm at one point in time. And ending war is an idea that has found great acceptance in various times and places. It was popular in the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s, and uh, it's not popular there anymore, and that's part of what World Beyond War is doing, is to try to make it popular again and inevitable. War is not inevitable. Should I use that one? No, you can tell you it's on the wrong side of your collar. There we go. Give that a go. Um, that might be better. That's better? Oh, okay, left side. Myth number two, war is necessary. Well, uh, I don't believe war is necessary. I don't think anybody here believes it, it is necessary. If it was necessary, couldn't it be want launched without lies? Uh, there's a, a book, a gentleman that came in actually uh, had that book, uh, War is a Lie, and I have it here as well. It's David Swanson's book right there. He's uh, holding it up. War is a Lie, and in there it documents 
all past wars for the past 100 or so years and shows that every single one of them, every single one without exception, was started with lies. Just like the, as we now know, the Iraq war, uh, supposed to be weapons of mass destruction. There were not. They knew it at that time. They lied about it. Every single one of them, though, even the ones that we think are good wars, there were lies that started them. So war is clearly not necessary. War is beneficial. Well, this one definitely is not true. We need to believe war is not beneficial. If war was beneficial, then why are its victims so ungrateful? Ask any country that has been a victim of a war. Ask the Iraqis, ask the Afghanistan, ask Vietnam. None of them are, are, are grateful for uh, the military machines that came in and destroyed their, their countries. So war is, is, is not beneficial. It doesn't benefit its victims. The majority of the deaths are civilians. Scholars at, uh, at both the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and Rand Corporation have found that wars aimed at nation-building have an extremely low to non-existent success rate in creating stable democracies. Uh, during the Iraq War, polls found that a majority in the U.S. believed Iraqis were better off as a result of war and that Iraqis were grateful for war. It's surprising. But the majority of Iraqis, however, believed that they were worse off. Uh, the aftermath, the, the most deadly weapons left behind by war are landmines and cluster bombs. So a 1993 U.S. State Department report called landmines perhaps the most toxic and widespread pollution facing mankind. So millions of hectares in Europe and North America and Asia are under interdiction because of tens of millions of landmines and cluster bombs left behind by war. In Libya, one-third of the country of the landmass is considered contaminated by landmines World War II. Since World War II, I, I was surprised when I read about this. I thought they were referring to the current war uh, and effects of that, but it's actually since World War II. And war does not bring stability. Um, making war creates resentment, new enemies, distrust, and further wars. Preparation for war makes other nations feel they must also prepare, and so a vicious cycle is created which perpetuates the war system. War can be imagined as a tool for enforcing the rule of law, but in fact war often violates international and domestic laws and encourages further violations. So war is not beneficial. Is, is war just? Well, I don't think it's just either. What was that? Sorry. No. Uh, we need to believe that war is never just, because it isn't. It's often deployed as a first resort, not the last resort. So the doctrine of just war comes out of the 4th century rejection of the Christian practice of pacifism. So this doctrine straight stated that in order to go to war, many criteria had to be satisfied, including that the war had to be fought with proportionate means, the evil of destruction could not outweigh the evil of not going to war, and that civilians were never to be attacked. World War II was not just. The purposeful slaughter of civilians by mass aerial bombardment and the use of nuclear weapons violates both criteria. Modern warfare kills many more innocents than combatants. 
A, a study found that the U.S. public believes that whenever the U.S. government proposes a war, it's already exhausted all other possibilities. It's not the case. There's a few real-world examples here. In 2013, Obama told us of the urgent last resort that we needed to launch a major bombing campaign in Syria. And then he reversed that direction, largely because of public resistance. So it turned out the option of not bombing Syria was available. Another example, 2001, the Taliban was willing to turn Osama bin Laden over to a third country to be tried for crimes the U.S. was alleged, alleging he'd committed. So instead of pursuing legal prosecutions for crimes, the U.S. and NATO chose an illegal war that did far more damage than the crimes and continued after bin Laden was said to have left the nation and continued after he was even announced to be dead. And it had uh, serious lasting damage to Afghanistan and Pakistan. So war was not a last resort. The U.S. didn't try to pursue legal persecutions. So according to a transcript of a meeting in February 2003 between George Bush and Prime Minister of Spain, Bush said that Saddam Hussein had offered to leave Iraq and go into exile if he could keep $1 billion. So instead, Bush's government claimed a war was needed to defend the U.S. against weapons that did not exist. So rather than losing a billion dollars, the people of Iraq saw the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. Millions were made refugees. Their nation's infrastructure and education and health system were destroyed. Environmental destruction, epidemics of disease, birth defects, all of which cost the U.S. $800 billion. So again, this is an example where there was actually an option. There always seems to be an option, but... Uh, the U.S. seems to present that there is no other option and, and, and they're going as a last resort. So these are some of the, the, the myths of wars and uh, some information on trying to debunk these myths. Um, that's one of the programs that World Beyond War does is try to debunk the myths of war. There's other myths, there's other thinking, ways of thinking where people try to use those to justify warfare and uh, World Beyond War's educational campaign tries to counteract that and, and debunk those so that people can more easily come to the conclusion that we, we actually don't need the, the institution of war at all on the planet. So again, uh, this chapter I, I mentioned earlier started around uh, the spring of this year. And how that came about uh, is uh, about three years ago I met David Swanson, the founder of World Beyond War. Uh, in Bellingham, he was presenting at a, a church there, and that's when I first met him, and I've kind of been watching the organization and got interested in it and read their book, War is a Lie, uh, as, as was uh, shown earlier, and it, it really inspired me that, that there is a different way, and I was looking for what, what that different way could be. And, and I think I found it with, with World Beyond War. So I went to their conference, their first conference in Canada that they had last year in uh, September 2018. And it was at OCAD University. And it was a great conference. People from all over the world came to that conference. Um, and there were a lot of information that was uh, new to me that was presented there. And a lot of connections were made. And so that, that's a picture there on, on the left is Leah Bolger. She's the uh, president of World Beyond War. 
and uh, that's when she was giving a talk. And you can see the crowd there on, on the right there. And it was at this conference, uh, September 2018, that I decided to start this chapter. And I, I told the board there that uh, of my plan, and they gave me the blessing to, to go ahead. And so that's where I initially, the seed, initial seed was planted. Uh, after that, there was another conference two months later in uh, Dublin, Ireland. It was the launch of a global campaign. Uh, it was called No to NATO Bases. So it was the launch of a global campaign to shut down, to figure out how to shut down the NATO U.S. bases around the world, 800 of them. There were 800 US, U.S. NATO bases around the world, and uh, none of the countries really want them there. And so th this was the launch of that campaign, and I, I, went, I went there again and uh, met different people from the different chapters all around the world. I met a gentleman called Tim Pluta, who came from Spain, and he was in the same sort of stage as me. He was starting a chapter in Spain. A chapter of World Beyond War. And so we, we discussed different ideas. And so I've uh, been in touch with him over, over that time period till now so that we can kind of grow our chapters uh, uh, together and learn from each other. And then this here is a, a picture here on the left is David Swanson. He's the actual founder of, of World Beyond War, one of the founders. And he's written these books that I have on the table here. He's the author of those books and uh, a really dynamic speaker. Um, he was at the, their latest conference, No to NATO 2019, and that was just uh, a month, month ago in October. Uh, and I went to that conference as well. It was in Limerick, Ireland. And Limerick is about 20 minutes from uh, airport, Shannon Airport, which is a civilian airport, but it's being used by the U.S. Army as they go to the Middle East and as they come from the Middle East and wherever the wars are, they land there and refuel and, and re-energize their, their troops as they come back and forth. Um, so that was one of the reasons the conference happened in Limerick. Uh, Ireland is supposed to be a uh, neutral country and they're allowing uh, the U.S. To, to do this, which is not the behavior of a neutral country. So it was to send a message about that. And uh, you can see some of the attendees. We had a group photo there. This is actually nearby the airport. At, after the conference ended, we went to uh, the airport and had a protest there. And we took this picture after the protest. Um, yeah, one, one of the people actually I met at this conference, Liz from our New Zealand chapter, a uh, little inspiring story about her. She came to that conference via Iran. She was actually in Iran for 10 days. And during that time, with the connections that she had, she was able to start uh, in two different cities, two chapters of World Beyond War as she was coming to the conference. And that really inspired me to, it gave me an idea, uh, which, which, uh, which I'm working on now, is uh, the countries of India and Pakistan. As you know, there's, they're having difficulties uh, between them, and this Kashmir situation is going on. So I had this idea that why not start two chapter, a sister chapter in India and Pakistan, and let's see where that goes. So that was one of the projects I've taken on, and I'm inspired by Liz and uh, trying to progress that forward. And here, as a picture on the left, is from the very first 
event that we had here of the local chapter, the local Vancouver chapter, that was in June 23rd. And uh, we had a speaker, Tamara Lorenx, and she's an amazing speaker. Uh, vast knowledge on the topic of, of uh, climate crisis and how that's linked to militarism and war and, and their interconnections. She's actually doing her PhD on that topic, and she presented on that. And uh, shortly, I'll, I'll show you a, a little video snippet of her talking and at, the, at that event. And then on August 5th, we had our next two events. Uh, David Swanson was here for those events. Uh, he was actually here on the West Coast, uh, California, Portland, and made his way up here, and we had him for one day. And we were able to have two events that day where David spoke. And again, he's, he's amazing to, to listen to. His uh, knowledge of this topic is so vast. And uh, I'll also show a video snippet of that, and he'll break down the myths uh, of war in, in his own way. And so this is kind of how the, the chapter has grown in the last few months. I'd like to suggest to you that there is a sector of society that has been ignored, that is contributing to this burning, that has been contributing to the climate crisis, and that is the military. Last week, the double all of the car use every year in the United States. And the U.S. military every year uses more fuel than the countries of Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. The report also had this quote, and I'm going to read it, and I want you to picture in your mind what this looks like. Okay, because the report said that of all four branches in the military, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and Cyber, it's the Air Force that uses the most fuel. Okay, so I'm going to read this and, and picture it in your mind. This is a picture of an American V-2 bomber being refueled by a KC-135 Strato tanker. Okay, so the report says, a B-2 bomber on a mission from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri might be refueled many times. For example, on January 18, 2017, two B-2 bombers accompanied by 15 KC-135 and KC-10 aerial refueling tankers made a 30-hour trip from the Whiteman Air Force Base uh, to Libya to drop bombs on the ISIS targets in that country. Can you imagine? So these, this is, this is incredible. Now this is a Canadian fighter jet called a CF-18 and it is re being refueled by a Canadian uh, aerial tanker called a Polaris. And these fighter, Canadian fighter jets were used from October 2014 to February 2016 to bomb Syria and Iraq. Canada stopped bombing Syria and Iraq in 2016, but we were doing all of the refueling for the U.S.-led coalition airstrikes in those countries from 2016 until the end of January of this year. Now, these fighter jets use a specialized fuel called JP-8, which is more highly refined and toxic than commercial aircraft. As well, these fighter jets, they only fly with one pilot, whereas a commercial aircraft will, will, will hold 100 to 200 uh, passengers. They burn 14,400
400 pounds of fuel an hour, and it costs between 10 and uh, 15, uh, 10 and 17 thousand dollars an hour to maintain and operate. So just five hours of flying these fighter jets cost it, it, is what the salary of a nurse or teacher is in this province or in my province. So these this this. Air, Canadian airstrikes and Canadian refueling is called Operation Impact. Now, this is the website from the Depart Canadian Department of National Defense, and it shows that these Polaris refuelers, over the past five years, they flew a thousand sorties, seven thousand hours, and they delivered over sixty-five million pounds of fuel to. That was the video clip. Um, so. It there's another one after this, we can just leave that. So it was really uh, amazing, I was surprised, I was shocked that the, the new government that uh, we had in, from, from the previous election, um, election happened in 2015, uh, 2016 February they were still bombing in Iraq, in Syria. And then from then till January of this year, they were refueling the planes that were bombing. And I don't know, I, I just, I found that so hypocritical that uh, refugees were being brought into Canada. A, a big thing was being made about it, but at the same time you're going around and, and bombing or helping to bomb by refueling um, that part of the world. So the actual entire talk that Tamara did, it's actually available online um, from our Facebook page for World Beyond War Vancouver, you can actually go there and see the entire talk if you are interested in doing that, or from the YouTube channel for World, World Beyond War Vancouver. Uh, next here, I'm going to show a clip. This is a little longer clip from David Swanson's talk when he was here on, on the 5th of, uh, of August. But to address some of the common reasons why people think that, uh, a, a lot of people think that war is just inevitable. It's just natural. It's just normal. It's part of this mysterious substance no one has ever actually snapped a photo of called human nature. Uh, that, it, that it just can't be gotten rid of. It's in our genes. It's in our biological, historical, Marxist, mystical destiny. And there's nothing you can do about it. So get real and be realistic and do the tough work that somebody has to do and, and so forth which is, is absolutely bizarre, I think, if you stop for 30 seconds uh, and look at the fact that war as it exists now has almost nothing in common with war as it existed just 100, 200 years ago, which is a split second in the existence of our species. And then if you go back just 10,000 years or so, which is maybe a full second in the existence of our species, there wasn't anything that resembled war at all prior to that. The vast majority of our existence as, as homo sapiens didn't have anything you could call war. And even now, even in the most war-mad country we, the world has seen, the one that I live in, the vast majority of people have nothing whatsoever to do directly with war. And the military is freaking out because it can't find enough young people who've ever known anybody or had anybody in their family who had anything to do with war. Uh, and oddly, that sliver of the population that does participate in what is required by human nature 
overwhelmingly suffer from it. And suicide rates shoot up, the moral guilt, the agony, the, the post-traumatic stress disorder skyrocket. The, uh, sad to say, the likelihood of becoming a mass shooter in a shopping mall goes through the roof. Uh, you know, so how can it be that something that most people avoid and that the people who don't avoid, uh, the majority of whom say that they, they joined the military, among other reasons, because they didn't have any better options, they suffer from it. I, you know, I, I can't give a definition of what it means for something to be natural. I don't know what that means, but if anything is natural, how can it be that? <laughs> you know, that's got to be the opposite. Uh, then pe people will tell you, well, war is necessary. War is obligatory. Uh, you're, you're going to be attacked and have your rights removed and your freedoms diminished uh, or be, be killed uh, if, if you don't have wars. Uh, which, which is very strange for people to be telling me in the United States. You know, it, it would make a little more sense if they were telling me that in <coughs> Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the places that the United States bombs. Uh, but if the United States and NATO and its allies were to stop bombing people and stop initiating all of these wars and stop arming the world, to fight all of these wars, uh, then this question of needing to fight back wouldn't arise, right? And we, we, see, we see these regions of the world that we think of as beneath us and generating the problem of war. We, we have to have war in the world because of those backward people in North Africa or the Middle East. Or, you know, these are regions of the world that, with few small exceptions, such as Israel, don't produce any weapons. The weapons have to be shipped in, right? This is like the alcohol for the for the indigenous people of this country. This is like the the the, the opium for the Chinese. This is a these are toxic products that are pushed on regions of the world by other parts of the world that profit from it. Uh, so if 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 the good civilized people who need to be the cops of the world and protect everyone with war making would stop giving weapons of war to the world, their argument would, would you know, diminish dramatically, right? This, you know, you, you give the people of the United States all these guns, and, and, as well as these attitudes, and look what happens. And the suicides shoot through the roof. Australia took away the guns, and the suicide rate went, you know, to the floor. Uh, if you give the world these guns, these weapons of war, they use them. Uh, it, it, and, and this isn't the 1930s. We have a hundred years of established, documented evidence that the strongest tools with which to resist military aggression are nonviolent tools. So this notion that <coughs> poor people being attacked have the choice of lying down and taking it or waging war is a false choice. It, it isn't true. Uh, you know, if, if the United States invades Canada and the people of Canada refuse collectively to obey any orders, the United States has not invaded Canada. You can't, you can't occupy people who are not willing to be occupied. Uh, if, if Canada wants to generate 
anti-Canadian terrorist networks around the world on a U.S. scale wants to have groups of people hating Canada the way they hate the United States, well then it will need to export more weapons, invade more countries, kick in more doors, drop more bombs, put more people in prisons on islands, uh, and, and create some blowback that can be used in a vicious cycle to say, well now there are people who hate us, we have to invest more in, in kicking in more doors. So this is, this is how the thinking goes in the United States, but it's counterproductive. Uh, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, so every time there's a war, we're told it can't be avoided, it's necessary, we must urgently start it before peace has a chance to break out. And, and on top of that, we're also now told that it's beneficial, that each war benefits humanity, or it might, even though not a single one of them ever has, the next one might. Um, I don't know about here, but in the United States, every single one of these uh, discussions goes immediately to World War II. And the, the passionate, fervent hope that the very next war is going to be the second coming of the good war, World War II. So despite you know investing trillions and trillions of our dollars over 75 years in hoping for another World War II and admitting that it's been a counterproductive criminal disaster, that hope remains alive. Uh, and of course, World War II was no more justifiable than any of the other wars, and I fully expect that we will have that discussion uh, shortly. Um, but it's, it's, it's very, very strange that there's no other human enterprise where we go back 75 years to find a justification for it and continuing it as our primary uh, investment as a, as a society, uh, despite admitting that it's, that it's a disaster uh, in, you know, within recent memory. Um, so so there, there are all these myths, and, and they're the myths from just war theory, and then I have a, a, a book called War is Never Just, addressing all of these theories of how to make a war just. But if you sit down with people and talk with them, for a while, I have found that a large percentage of people can be brought around to an understanding that war can never be justified. Um, and I think it helps to understand that war is an institution, and that by putting these hundreds of billions of dollars each year into that institution, you are killing far more people than the wars ever kill, because fractions of that could provide everyone with the food and medicine and sustainable energy. You could fund a Green New Deal beyond the wildest dreams of advocates for a Green New Deal with a fraction of what we invest in war. And so the, the, the worst, the most, the deadliest weapon is, is the pocketbook. But it could be the nukes. And without war, you don't have the risk of nuclear apocalypse, which is as great as it has ever been. Uh, and and, you, and without war, you don't have one of the major contributors to climate collapse uh, that could be both gotten rid of and the money moved to where it's needed. Um, so, so that's the case we try to make. And, and sometimes it takes minutes, sometimes it takes hours or days, but we can bring, we found that we bring people in the direction of agreeing enough to work on it. Um, and, and, and I've touched on, you know, what what we lay out as many of the reasons why, including that war is immoral, 
that is that it is directly and indirectly one of the most deadly uh, and, and creators of, of suffering and misery uh, on the planet, uh, that it endangers rather than protects, that if you want actual safety, actual security, you invest in protecting the habitability of the planet, not in generating enemies, uh, that it damages the environment, that it erodes our civil liberties. In the United States, every war has big banners about freedom and songs about freedom. And with every war, we lose some of our freedoms. You know, if, if we are gonna fantasize about the people of North Korea, first of all, each cloning themselves 10 times, so there are enough of them, occupying the United States and taking away our freedoms. I mean, what freedoms are we gonna have left by that point after all the wars that, that, you know, that it takes to make that happen? Uh, we lose them in the name of war. The, all the secrecy, all the surveillance, all the justification for anti-democratic authoritarian governance comes from war. Without it, you have no justification for government secrecy whatsoever. You don't need heroic whistleblowers being demonized. You have open government. You have, anybody remember a guy named Woodrow Wilson who had 14 points, not a single one of which he cared a damn about? Anybody remember what the first point was? Open diplomacy, everything public, international relations on the internet. This is, you know, this actually made sense. Woodrow Wilson was a guy like Obama that, you know, was just an extreme militarist, but said stuff that made perfect sense if he had actually acted on it. Uh, worth some of which is still worth reading. Uh, war impoverishes us. This is the other thing we were, I was just in Seattle where you tell people we have to turn against the war machine and they say, but my neighbor works for Boeing. I said, I know your neighbor works for Boeing. I know your neighbor is a real person and that's a real job and we don't want your neighbor to suffer. But there is absolutely no dispute that putting the same amount of money into peaceful industries or even not taxing working people that money in the first place creates more jobs, better paying jobs, better economic impact than putting it into weapons building. And in fact, the savings is so great that with a tiny bit of organization, we could retrain and aid everybody who might suffer in the transition and convert without a single Boeing employee, you know, suffering a, a, a broken fingernail. You know, there's, there's no need for anyone to suffer in such a conversion process. So war impoverishes us. It is not a jobs program. You know, I, I saw a panel discussion on a stage like this. One of the panelists was Vladimir Putin. One of the panelists was the guy who was the last uh, U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. Uh, and Vladimir Putin is complaining about the new missiles right on the border of Russia. You know, I mean, I'm sure... Canada wouldn't mind, you know, a missile defense system on the U.S. border aimed at every Canadian city because it would be defensive, so it shouldn't bother you. Well, but the Russians, for some strange reason, don't like all these missiles aimed at them right on their border. And this former ambassador turns to President Putin and says, Vladimir, no, 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 you don't understand. Those have nothing to do with Russia. Those are just a jobs program for back in the United States. <laughs> and Putin 
to his credit, said, couldn't you have a different kind of jobs program? <laughs> and if he had, if I would have liked him to have in his pocket some reports from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst that show very clearly that any, almost any other jobs program would produce more jobs. You know? So it's, it's actually a drain. It's not a jobs program. It is an economic drain. Not that it wouldn't be sociopathic to wage these wars in the name of a jobs program, but it's also factually off base. Uh, so, so, uh, so this is, this is, you know, an outline of the basic case that we try to make, uh, and we can, you know, address the particular details in the thousands and thousands of cases that there are, but the argument, uh, is for taking a step beyond the institution of war as, as people set behind them, the institution of dueling for solving individual disputes and didn't keep around defensive dueling or humanitarian dueling, but said, this is barbaric. We are going to solve disputes without people shooting little guns at each other. That as, as people moved beyond blood feuds among families, uh, said, this is just not the way we're going to settle things. We have to find a way to move beyond mass murder organized and, and perpetuated in our names and for profit uh, by governments that, that have normalized it and made it shameless. Uh, and if we do so, we can prevent particular wars, we can end particular wars, and we can move our resources to human and environmental needs where they are ever more desperately needed and avoid all dying in a nuclear apocalypse. So I, I see a lot of upsides and not very many downsides, and I hope you all are ready to, to work with us on this project, and thanks for coming out today. That was David, David Swanson. So that was a, a great uh, couple of events that we had when David was here. Uh, we had about 55 people in the Surrey event, about 65 in the Vancouver event. So uh, that's the, the first few events we've had in this chapter. Uh, upcoming events, um, or we're participating in other events that are happening. Tomorrow, the Vancouver Peace Poppies that Dan already mentioned and Three Size here from that group as well. Uh, we'll have a table there set up for uh, World Beyond War and uh, have some books and pamphlets there for information. Um, in March of, uh, or, or April, we haven't confirmed the date yet, but there is a uh, John Foster who's written a book on oil and the oil industry and how that's connected with, with the wars, uh, oil and world politics. So he actually, probably about January, I'll find out the date, but he's going to give a talk and we're going to host a couple of events around him in, in the early spring time. And uh, in May of 2020, in Ottawa, we're having a, a large conference uh, of World Beyond War, international conference. And uh, we're hoping that it's going to be fairly large and it's timed with CANSEC. CANSEC is a trade show where, which Canada puts on every year, a trade show for military hardware, military devices. And people from all over the world come to look at these devices and make, make orders. And like Saudi Arabia, for example, that's how they came to, uh, to see those devices they made orders on which uh, you probably heard about in the news some time back. Um, so this conference coincides with that trade show, and uh, we're, we're hoping to disrupt the trade show, get caught, cause some uh, 
visibility, media attention that what they're doing is uh, is wrong. And uh, just to wrap up here. Um, so for our Vancouver chapter, if you want to get on the mailing list, there's a on the table there. There's a peace pledge that you can sign with your name and email address and for information. Uh, if you want to become part of the organizing committee of the chapter, um, when you fill that out, just put an O next to your name or just let me know and, uh, and we'll get you involved in the organizing committee. And uh, there's pamphlets there that you can pick up. There's books there, David Swanson's books, that you can purchase if you're interested. And uh, I believe that was the last slide. Right. Thank you. Thank you.